you may have noticed over your time here that teachers come in various forms. Sometimes they look like this. Or like this. <laughs> and then they keep going in various forms. Or sometimes they look like this. Other practitioners. Sometimes they look like the deer on the hillside, or the turkeys gobbling. Sometimes it looks like Indian food, or the bell. Sometimes teachers come in the form of cooks or managers. You may think that these are books, but don't be too sure. There's a beautiful quote in the Lankavatara Sutra that says, Things are not as they seem, nor are they otherwise. So I want to introduce you to one of my teachers who comes in this form. This is how I met him. I originally met him, he looked like this. And then I got to know some other sides of him. And there's even some other sides that I left at home. So that These really aren't just books. This is how I met a teacher of mine named Ryokan. Now, of course, these are still books also. So things are not as they seem, nor are they otherwise. And I didn't really realize that Rio Khan had become my teacher for a while. It's actually through other people that it was pointed out to me. I, I, um, so it was a couple years ago, um, I was doing a day long on Rio Khan, and somebody told me, oh yeah, Guy Armstrong was leading the Monday night class, and he said, he, said, Eugene's leading a day long on Ryokan. He said, you should go. Eugene's having a love affair with Ryokan. And I didn't, that's when I started to get it, that uh, I was having and still continue to have a certain kind of affair with Ryokan. And my wife started to make some jokes about it little bit. She said, oh yeah, you really like that guy, Ryokan, because he's such a crybaby. <laughs> and I realized she was right. <laughs> That's true. And I met him many years ago when I first started practice. I had a kind of new age hotshot um, guru who had a lot of cities, a lot of powers, which was really good for someone like me to kind of trick me into the life of dharma, to lure me in. I needed a little 
a little flash at first. But this kind of new age guru who was not so reliable, so I, I didn't stay with him too long. He said, go get, he said, if you want to understand the real Zen, get this book. So the guru says, get the book. I went and got the book. I went home and I read the book and I hated it. I thought, what is this stuff about? There's no flash here. There's no big experience here. There's no dissolving into light and color. And I didn't think about it again for a number of years. But as I um, left my guru and started wandering around and hanging out at Zen Center and with Tibetan Buddhists and Vipassana, uh, sometime later, I don't know why I didn't throw the book away, but I didn't. But then I started to read it, and it had such a big impact on me that I'd like to share my teacher with you tonight. Sometimes I talk about him that way, and people say, oh, is he local? You know, we all kind of <laughs> said it depends. And I always say, well, it depends where you're hanging out. <laughs> He's only been dead for about 150 years. So if you remember, we've, I think many of us have used this quote from Dogen during this retreat. To study Buddhism is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to become enlightened or intimate with all things. To be enlightened by all things is to drop off our body and mind and to drop off the body and mind of others. No trace of enlightenment remains. And this no trace continues endlessly. For me, Ryokan really embodied this understanding this intimacy with all things, no trace of realization, continuing endlessly. And I'm very touched and inspired by his practice and his realization, his dedication, his devotion, his sincerity of practice, his simplicity, and his complete acceptance of his humanity. It's quite startling, and maybe it's one of the pieces that um, I learned the most from him. His simple embodiment of the fruits of practice. And for myself, and maybe for you also, especially when I first came to practice, but even still continues at times, there can be a split between practice and life. And you're, in some sense, you're engaged in that um, dilemma as we get ready to leave the retreat. What does it mean to continue now, endlessly? For myself, especially at the beginning, I really idealized practice. Like, you know, practice was where it was at. That was real. That was where, that was what was important. And daily life was, well, you just go and make enough money so you can go and retreat again, basically. So sometimes we feel like we just want to sit on the 
cushion and the problems and tasks, the mundane, the simple of every day are somehow less important or less spiritual than sitting on the cushion. Again from Dogen. He says, those who see worldly life as an obstacle to dharma see no dharma in everyday actions. They have not yet discovered that there are no everyday actions outside of dharma. For Ryokan, there was no split. Life was practice, practice was life. You could use the two words without anything in between them. He actualized his practice, whether he was walking in the mountains, whether he was being lonely in his hermitage, whether he was playing with children or drinking sake with the farmers or shooting marbles with the courtesans or simply appreciating the changing seasons, the beauty of nature, or drawing his calligraphy. And he really um, displays the mind that has no preference. Because life is practice. It's not sitting on the cushion or having a certain experience, or being very open, or being very compassionate. It's not any, it's exactly what's happening now. And he manifests the ideal of the Bodhisattva way by bringing his presence everywhere. It said in the Zen tradition that one returns after studying, as we've been doing, to the marketplace with bliss-bestowing hands, which is really our presence, which is never lost even when you're unaware of it. So a little background about my teacher, Ryo Khan. He lived from about 1758 to 1831 lived in a village. His father was the head of the village and a Shinto priest. It said his mother was kind and loving. And somewhere around 18, 19, 20, he started having a certain kind of what we might call an existential crisis. And there's a number of stories about what led him to the contemplative life. He was the oldest son and he didn't want to take on his father's role as head of the village uh, for a number of different reasons. One is he was very innocent and he didn't like to deal with the contentiousness of people particularly. He, he, he didn't make sense to him. Um, and he had to be in that role. He also witnessed an execution at that time and that's something he would have to do over and over again in his role. And it was, he couldn't do it. It was too painful for him. And then there was a period of uh, dissolute living 
It said he was even known for a period to be a Don Juan. There's a quote, it said, when that fellow is around, better warn your daughters, it was said about him. And so he, one day after a big party, he got up, he put on white, shaved his head, and walked to the monastery. And he trained, as you've been training, sincerely, diligently, steadfastly, with your commitment, with your heart, with your devotion and care. He trained in Soto Zen, where simply sitting is the expression of Buddha, of Buddha nature. Practice and enlightenment are one. And he practiced diligently for about 12 years. Deeply moved by his teacher, Kokusen, who had this kind of down-to-earth Zen teaching. No-nonsense Zen, they called it. His Zen was piling up stones and hauling dirt. And we'll be doing a little more of that tomorrow as we do some more work practice. It's wonderful practice. It's one of the joys of doing Zen practice is you do this kind of mindless work that you don't have to think. You just do it. And you actualize your practice in the doing. I've done some of it, moving rocks, making a river bed work, or building bridges, or um, um, doing the laundry, or cleaning, cleaning lettuce. You've all had a little taste of it. It's wonderful practice. And then they also sat, studied the suttas, and he had a great love for his teacher and for his fellow students. And he wrote a poem about his friend Sengai. He said, Priest Sengai, a true man of the way, he worked in silence, no extra words for him. For 30 years he stayed in Kokusen's community. He never did meditation, never read the sutras, never said a word about Buddhism, just worked for the good of all. I saw him, but did not really see him. I met him, but did not really meet him. Ah, he is impossible to imitate. Prince Senkai, Priest Senkai, a true man of the way. So Ryokan is his Zen name, which means good and generous, kind-hearted, which was his nature. And he also happily took another name, which was Taigu, which means great fool, which also spoke to a kind of childlike simplicity and lack of pretense that he had. And in studying Zen, he was influenced by Dogen, who we've been quoting, and who writes beautifully about practice, realization. And he writes in ways, when you really read Dogen, Dogen himself can just turn your mind with his words. He's, he's quite... Uh, his words actualize his understanding. So they're always paradoxical. 
And they're not, you can't just figure them out with your mind. But what I find very interesting is what Ryokan related to was what was called um, the four great virtues that Dogen talked about, which are much more straightforward than most of Dogen's writings. And the four great virtues are charity, kind words, good works, and empathy. And we know these. And we know these both in our practice, and we know that they are practices in and of themselves. And so I mention these because you'll be leaving soon. And these are wonderful practices to take with you. Charity is dana, the practice of generosity. Or kind words. See what it's like to practice kind words for a week. Or empathy, which really Tara was talking about a lot last night. How important that is to see people, to really open our eyes, open our being, and see who is this? What is this? And to get the experience of another person and how much we love to be gotten that way. I know my daughter loves it when I actually see her. You know, not my idea of her, not my idea that she's my daughter, but who she is now, what her experience is. So please take one of these home with you as a little gift from Ryokan, really from Dogen via Ryokan. So he practiced diligently for 12 years, and then he left to return to the marketplace, as you'll be doing in two days, with gift-bestowing hands, the fruit of your practice. And he lived the life of renunciation that was fully entwined with the world around him. Again, the, the Sufi idea to be of, in the world, but not of it. To not lose touch with this wonderful freedom, kindness, peace, openness that we've tasted. A poem, a good one for us since we've celebrated spring together from Ryokan. I think all the rest of these are from Ryokan, the poems. He says, first days of spring, blue sky, bright sun, Everything is gradually becoming fresh and green. Carrying my bowl, I walk slowly to the village. The children, surprised to see me, joyfully crowd about, bringing my begging trip to an end at the temple gate. This is actually a very common uh, story about Ryokan, is he would often be doing his begging, and he'd run into kids, and he would have so much fun with them that he would forget to eat. He would forget to continue begging. He says, I place my bowl on top of a white rock and hang my sack from the branch of a tree. Here we play with the wild grasses and throw a ball. For a time I play catch while the children sing. Then it is my turn. 
playing like this, here and there, I have forgotten the time. Passers-by point and laugh at me, asking, what is the reason for such foolishness? No answer I give, only a deep bow. Even if I replied, they would not understand. Look around, there is nothing beside this. And it's the same this that's here right now. There is nothing beside this moment. And so he has the name Taigu. He doesn't mind being thought the fool by people because he understands the freedom of the holy fool, of the wise fool. And I found, I found that very helpful to not take oneself too seriously. That if we can be the fool, there's a great freedom in that. Doesn't mean we're, we're not serious also. We can be serious fools too. <laughs> I've done it. <laughs> he says, today's begging is finished. At the crossroads, I wander by the side of the Buddha shrine talking with some children, last year a foolish monk, this year no change. He can include all of himself without judgment, without harshness. I talked to a yogi today who was a little upset because he had been talking last night a bit and felt um, just bad about what he said. Like, oh, this whole part of me that I thought, he said, shouldn't this be gone after two months of sitting? And I said, no, of course not. Things are not as they seem, nor are they different. A lot's happened. It's amazing what's happened, and here we are. Can we include all of ourselves, the parts that embarrass us, the parts we think there's something wrong with? In the Zen tradition, they have this wonderful phrase, no part left out. Let's include it. Let's include our, uh, our weirdness, our awkwardness, our grandiosity our deflation, the whole show, without judging it. Mm. Yurokan has a wonderful love of nature, and it's woven through all his poetry and his teachings. And he points us to that the Dharma is everywhere, and the Dharma is being revealed to us everywhere. He says, the rain has stopped, The clouds have drifted away and the weather is clear again. If your heart is pure, then all things in your world are pure. Abandon this fleeting world. Abandon yourself. Then the moon and flowers will naturally guide you along the way.
this poem so beautifully kind of summarizes his true humanness. Listen to what he says. Wild peonies, now at their peak, in glorious bloom, too precious to pick, too precious not to pick. <laughs> and his passion also, he says, tomorrow will mark the arrival of spring. There's no help for it. My heart beats faster and faster. I cannot sleep. Spring comes tomorrow. Just a great innocence, a great love of life. Here's a story about Ryokan. This, this is a great story. One day he noticed three bamboo shoots growing under his veranda. And, you know, if you know, bamboo grows very quickly. And soon the shoots were pushing against the floor, the bottom of the floor. And this made him very anxious. He was upset about this. For he did not like to see anything suffer, even plants. He decided to chop an, open, an opening in the floor and to burn a hole in the section of the thatched roof covering the veranda to permit the bamboo to grow unimpeded. But when Ryokan put a candle to that part of the roof, the entire veranda caught fire and burned down. <laughs> Ryokan held a funeral for the roasted bamboo and then built a roofless veranda with sliding floorboards that would allow the bamboo shoots to slip through. So he's a little bit of a nut. <laughs> and again, there's something really good about that for us because it allows us to be a little nutty without thinking poorly of ourselves. There's something beautiful in his nuttiness. His intimacy with all things, the bamboo shoots, and this tremendous compassion that he embodies and lives. One of his most famous poems, Oh, that my priest's robe were wide enough to gather all the suffering people in this floating world. That my priest's robe were wide enough to gather all the suffering people in this floating world. Mm, just boundless compassion. I love that image. Actually, I, I don't know if I told this story here about Kitty Saro and Tanisara. I don't think so. We have some friends, Kitty Saro and Tanisara, who are former monastics. And they, I told it in small group here. Um, and they visited, when actually when Tara and I and Marie were in teacher training, you might not have been there, a number of years ago. And they had been in the monastery together, Kitty Saro for about 15 years and Tanisara for about 12. And they met, man and woman, and they had some energy between them in the monastery, but they were very good monk and nun. They didn't do anything about it, but they decided to kind of check it out. So they had to leave the monastery, which is technically called 
disrobing. So they disrobed and met again on the outside of the monastery and now have been married for about, I think, seven or eight years. And uh, wonderful people. They'll be here in October. Please come to their day long if you're around. They're, they're beautiful beings, both of them. And um, I talked to Kitty Sarah. I said, how is it to be in relationship? You know, because it's so much as Tara, I think, said last night, it's the edge of practice for many of us. It's a real cutting edge. And he said something very similar to what Ryokan said. He said, oh, it's like having two people under one robe. Isn't that a beautiful image? Two people. And I think of that now in my marriage. I think, oh, now I get to be mindful of this person's breath and body and heart and mind, as well as my own. And it's a wonderful way to think about um, expanding your practice as you leave to the people close to you and then beyond, to all the suffering people in this floating world. Bring them under your robe. He also has this great relationship with kids. He just loves kids. He writes, hand in hand, the children and I pick spring vegetables. What could be more wonderful? And the poignancy of life, children. He says, as I watch the children happily playing without realizing it, my eyes fill with tears. Just appreciating the beauty of life. And he's quite forthcoming about his own sorrow. There's no, no judgment of it. There's no idea that he's not supposed to suffer or feel bad. He says, sometimes I sit quietly listening to the sound of falling leaves. Just that. Now, that's a great line. I mean, try that sometimes. Sit quietly listening to the sound of falling leaves. He says, peaceful indeed is the life of a monk, cut off from all worldly matters. Then why do I shed these tears? And especially when I was working as a grief counselor, this poem just meant so much to me. He says, walking along a narrow path at the foot of a mountain, I come to an ancient cemetery filled with countless tombstones and thousand-year-old oaks and pines. Can you imagine how big they are? The day is ending with a lonely, plaintive wind. The names on the tombs are completely faded, and even the relatives have forgotten who they were. Choked with tears, unable to speak, I take my staff and return home. No separation. Mm. He has an interesting little self-help side, which some of you may have. You know, you ever kind of do pep talks for yourself? You know, I'm going to sit every day, or I'm not going to 
You know, I'm not going to walk fast or I'm not going to do this or I'm going to try to be very centered when I go to the par- a party or things like that. He's got these words for himself. I'll just read a few. He, he, he says, Take care not to smile condescendingly at others' words. It's good advice for all of us. Take care not to speak grandly of enlightenment. Also actually good advice on leaving a retreat. Take care not to ignore the people to whom you are speaking. It's very good advice. <laughs> Take care not to speak of things of which you have no knowledge. <laughs> Take care not to chant prayers ostentatiously. Take care not to complain about the amount of alms you receive. It's a good one for teachers in general. He's very human in that way. And, you know, we talked, somebody asked about humor. I think Phil did the other day. And he laughs a lot. He plays a lot. He plays with people, the kids, but also other people. And because he's kind of an innocent, people trick him a lot. And he's this... um, even in his time, his calligraphy was highly prized, and still you can find it in museums and private collections in Japan. Um, so people would actually, um, oh, I'm getting ahead of it, here it is. He liked to poke fun at people who were kind of pompous or with, where there was too much pomp and ceremony. So there's this story about him going to a very fancy tea where everybody's dressed in their silks, and he's in his one robe, you know. It's not like he's got a silk robe. It's, you know, it's more on the bahia of the bark cloth side of the, you know, continuum when it comes to fashion. And he, uh, he goes to this fancy tea, and he's sitting there with all these people. He starts drinking the tea, and he puts it down. He spits it back in the bowl. He says, oh, this is horrible. And, and then he, he didn't... He thought the person next to him was a little pompous, so it said that he picked his nose and tried to deposit it on the haughty person (laughs) next to him. (laughs) I don't know if everybody laughed at the party, but I I thought it was pretty good. (laughs) And again, he was famed as a calligrapher, and people would try to trick him to get his calligraphies. So like one time he comes to some family's house and they say, oh, there's something upstairs. And they, he goes up this ladder and they take the ladder away. And they say, there's rice paper and pens and ink. We'll only bring the ladder back when you, you know. And so he does these, he plays with them. And um, the other, another story was he was getting a haircut after a long winter. And that barber cut, shaved half his head and then said, I won't shave the other half until you give me a... Uh, a calligraphy, and this was before that kind of fashion was hip, you know, <laughs> after you had. And this one, I'll, t- I'll tell you what, he was playing Go, and he was bad at it, but he kept wanting to play, and the winners finally said, okay, I'll play you again. If you lose again, you have to give me a calligraphy. And this kept going over and over, so he lost a number of times. And so he got, he gave this man these calligraphy, but they all said the same thing. And they said, picking persimmons, 
my testicles are frozen by the autumn wind. <laughs> so, no part left out, right? It's a Zen practice, and, uh, and he was playful with people. And he was playful about suffering, too. When he was old, he wrote, It is an easy condition to talk about, but these runny bowels are killing me. (laughs) And at the same time, he had a great love for people and for contact, for belonging, for being part of the world with all of us. He writes all night long in my grass hut, warmed up by warmed by brushwood. We talked and talked. How can I forget that wonderful evening? Descending to the valley to gather orchids, the ground was blanketed with frost and dew, and it took all day to find the flowers. Suddenly I thought of an old friend separated from me by miles of mountains and rivers. Will we ever meet again? I gazed toward the sky, tears streaming down my cheeks. He has a very interesting development late in his life as an old, older man. He falls in love with a young nun, a woman half his age. Uh, And they have what is said to be a very intense platonic love affair. Very passionate. And they write these poems to one another that are really beautiful. See if you recognize yourself, how you felt in a love affair in any of these. She first wrote, her name's Taishan, Was it really you I saw, or is this joy I feel only a dream? You know how you feel when you first meet somebody and you have that feeling of, wow, who is this person? And Ryokan replied, kind of uh, urging her on. He said, in this dream world, we doze and talk of dreams. Dream, dream on as much as you wish. And as they get together, and then she doesn't visit him for a while. He sent her this verse. Have you forgotten me or lost the path here? Now I wait for you all day, every day, but you do not appear. Anybody there? Anybody here know that experience? Mm. Mm. And when she comes, he writes, In all of heaven and earth, there is nothing more precious than a visit from you on the first day of spring. And she nicknames him Crow. And Crow in the Far East, it said, is a symbol of eternal love. And he liked the name. He took it. And she wrote, When a mountain crow, she's writing this, When a mountain crow flies to his home, Shouldn't he take his soft-winged little darling? And he writes back, I'd love to take you anywhere I go, 
but won't people suspect us of being lovebirds? Mm. They were together for most of the rest of his life. He writes chanting old poems, making our own verses, playing with the ball, together in the fields, two people, one heart. So a very full life of a human, very full human life, lived with awareness and joy, sorrow, personal, yet knowing and being aware of the deepest truths. His wisdom. In the stillness by the empty window, I sit in formal meditation wearing my monk's robes, navel and nose in alignment, ears parallel with the shoulders. Moonlight floods the room. The rain stops, but the eaves drip and drip. Perfect this moment. In the vast emptiness, my understanding deepens. And he describes the process of awakening, of the unfoldment, not so much as a big deal, but in its simplicity, a little like, do you remember when Marie gave the first talk of this month? She talked about the Dalai Lama plodding along day by day. It's kind of like that, isn't it? Even with the big things that happen, we just go, we sit and we walk and we sit and we walk, and slowly, slowly, we're unfolded. He puts it this way. He says, like the little stream making its way through the mossy crevices, I, too, quietly turn clear and transparent. Like the little stream making its way through the mossy crevices, I, too, quietly turn clear and transparent. Beautiful poem. Beautiful understanding. And he's so present with the moment in his writings, in his life. He has this experience happen. One day he comes home to his little hut, which is really a hut, where he's basically got uh, a little zabutan and a little zafu and maybe some ink and pens and paper and one bowl. And everything's been stolen. You know, I mean, my reaction is like, give me a break, you know? I mean, I don't, I don't know. You could think about how you would react to that. You have very little. You're, you're very, totally harmless in the world when somebody takes the little bit that you've got. He wrote this poem, his haiku, his most famous. The thief left it behind, the moon at the window. The thief left it behind, 
the moon at the window. Just this moment. There is this idea, especially in Japanese Zen, called mushin. Mushin is no mind, or the mind that abides nowhere. And here's a poem of his that describes this understanding of mushin. He says, with no mind, blossoms invite the butterfly. With no mind, the butterfly visits the blossom. When the flower blooms, the butterfly comes. When the butterfly comes, the flower blooms. I do not know others, K-N-O-W. Others do not know me. Not knowing each other, we naturally follow the way. When we forget the self, when we let body and mind and the body and minds of others drop away, then we naturally follow the path. At the end of his life, kind of summing up, he said, what is the heart of this old monk like? It's like a gentle wind beneath a vast sky. So I hope, I hope this is a little introductory meeting for you if you haven't met Ryokan. And I hope it points you towards your humanity because I so appreciate his complete humanness that he offers us, his fullness, his willingness to reveal both his understanding and his difficulties, his joy, his grief, his awkwardness, and his grace. And you notice he's so open about it that they actually become one. The awkwardness becomes a grace because it's held with this great heart of kindness. And he opens to the paradox of human life with compassion. And I hope we can open with the same kindness, with the same compassion, willing to be enlightened by all things, intimate with everything. For me, it had a really big, he's had a really big impact on helping me. I wrote this line once. It's one of the few things I've written that I like. It's pretty short. I wrote, Buddha became the Buddha by being the Buddha. He didn't become Buddha by being Rama or Krishna. He became the Buddha by being himself all the way to the bottom, because at the bottom is the Buddha.
And, and I see this with Ryokan. He's Ryokan all the way to the bottom. He's not trying to be Dogen or Rinzai or Hakuin. He's Ryokan. And I've really felt that his greatest gift was that Ryokan being Ryokan has helped Eugene be Eugene. To just allow the Eugeneness of this of this, what is this? So last poem. Buddha is your mind, and the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. If you point your cart north, when you want to go south, how will you arrive? Let's sit for a minute. Buddha is your mind, and the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. Thank you for your kind attention. Just a couple words about the evening, the morning. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.